Welcome to Health Trust Clinical Services Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talk to Health Trust Clinical Warrior David Silverman, Vice President of Pharmacy at Prime Healthcare. The moment COVID began to wreak havoc in the United States, David's leadership and proactive thinking united Prime Healthcare's 46 hospitals. David marshaled clinical operation standardization, corporate formularies, a national stockpiling strategy, and a benchmark for staffing. David talked to me about the benefits and drawbacks of Prime's large national footprint and the importance of putting patients first. Health Trust's own Vice President of Pharmacy, Jason Braithwaite, also weighs in, and the two discuss how Health Trust has supported Prime's pharmacy operations strategy during the pandemic. My name is David Silverman. I'm currently the VP of Pharmacy at Prime Healthcare. I've been with Prime Healthcare since about 2017. Um, they acquired my hospital, uh, which was St. Michael's in New Jersey. That was a failing hospital. Um, at the time I was there, I was a critical care pharmacist. Um, eventually, I became the corporate clinical pharmacy director, uh, then a regional pharmacy director in Prime. Uh, so I oversaw California and Nevada operations, and then I became the VP of pharmacy. Um, before that, I did a PGY1 residency in New Jersey, and then I have uh, two board certifications in pharmacotherapy and critical care. So that's kind of my clinical and uh, operational background. Great. Tell me about Prime Healthcare. So Prime Healthcare, we're 45 hospitals in 14 states, um, but as of last week, we actually had a new acquisition, St. Francis in Linwood, California. So um, we acquired a hospital during the pandemic, and we we converted them over to Epic and OmniCell um, just last week, so it's been a roller coaster. But uh, similar to HCA, we have you know a, a decent footprint across the country. You guys are, I think, around 180. We're about 46 now. We have and we have uh, 14 states um, from the East Coast to the West Coast. So you you spread the country. We do. Um, we have some markets that are better infiltrated than others, like, for example, 16 in California, 6 in Texas, but then we have these one-off hospitals in Indiana, Florida, Georgia, 2 in Ohio. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of economies of scale in certain markets, and a lot of the stuff that we do, um, sometimes it only applies to one hospital because of the local board of pharmacy or different infrastructure there. So the okay. lack of economy of a scale in certain markets is a sort of a challenge for us on the pharmacy side at least. Okay. Let's talk about an article I read recently where you were featured. You discussed your grandfather's influence on your career choice. Can you tell me about your grandfather, a little about him and how he influenced your career choice? Sure. So my grandfather, his name is Alan Silverman. He's a clinical pharmacist specializing in pain management. And he was based out of the uh, Jersey City Medical Center in New Jersey. Um, when I was when I was in school, um, you know, elementary school, he used to take me on pain management consults with him around the hospital, and it was just really an incredible experience to see that interaction between him, uh, the patient, and the physician. And that's really what kind of got me interested in pharmacy to begin with. And I modeled a lot of my clinical career based on those early interactions. So um, as soon as possible, I did a residency, and then I tried to spend as much as my time at the bedside whenever possible. Uh, trying to round with the, inter the interdisciplinary team in the ITU. So because of that 
time that I spent at the bedside, um, I was able to see the downstream impact of pharmacy and our decision on things like nursing and physician workflows. So when COVID-19 hit, it was really kind of impactful for me because, again, I came from a very bedside-based career, thinking about things like we only have 20 ml vials of propofol left or trying to imagine our colleagues managing vents for patients with ARDS without paralytics, for example. So because of that early on bedside approach and kind of being with the nurses and physicians more so than some other pharmacists might be, um, it really became our focus, my focus during the pandemic to make sure that we didn't run out of these critical drugs and what, how my decisions might be impacting the care that they're providing. So that's kind of how it all ties together from my perspective. Now, that's amazing to me to hear that your grandfather uh, had you round with him when you were young, and that translated into really some of uh, the response that you had during a pandemic and how it really shaped your uh, your response through uh, a global um, a global situation. So that's really cool to hear how that that translated over time. In the article I mentioned, you also mentioned the need for a prioritized standardization strategy. Can you tell me a little more about that? So like we said earlier, Prime Healthcare has 46 hospitals in 14 states as of last week. And that presents a lot of challenges for us due to geography because there's a lot of variability, as you might know, with hospitals, um, sorry, with regards to their infrastructure, such as what EHR system they have, what medication dispensing systems they have. Some are Omnicell, some are Pixis, different IV pumps the different structures of the department and variations in clinical and operational workflows. Um, when we talk about different states, we also have some variance in boards of pharmacy requirements and also differences in the various accrediting agencies. So when we have a situation where there's not a lot of economy or economies of scale, and we have these one-off hospitals, like I said earlier in Florida, Indiana, for example, that are much smaller, and they don't have as much staff as other hospitals, and they don't have um, maybe the resources we might have in states like California or New Jersey. So by having a standardized approach through things like using the um, HPG contracting and doing things as much as possible through dedicated subcommittees or corporate teams, we're able to leverage our expertise around the country and prevent that one hospital from having to reinvent the wheel locally when they don't have the resources to do so. So by having a large standardized corporate strategy, much like HCA, HCA does, we're able to really synergize where we can and I guess use that, leverage that internal expertise where possible to ideally have the best outcome. So the biggest bang for your buck. That's great. In the article, you also talked about your passion and advocacy for pharmacy um, and how it contributes to healthcare more than just dispensing meds. Give me some examples and how you see the pharmacist role. Sure. So I've heard um, members of your team talk about these types of topics at Health Trust University, HTU. But um, my passion, again, has always been on the clinical side of pharmacy. So when I say that, I'm generally referring to things like interdisciplinary rounding, code response, you know, really managing drug therapy for the patients, and also some leadership roles. Uh, so for example, when I was the critical care pharmacist at St. Michael's, I did a lot of work to improve the overall code response and the quality of those responses at the hospital. And because of the work that I did um, to improve the quality of those codes, they actually nominated me to become the chair of the code committee, which is an interdisciplinary committee. And so it was, it was fun being the chair of a committee, um, you know, leading a committee over physicians and nurses. 
And so that really showed me that, um, you know, as a pharmacist, even though we specialize in drugs, we can still really speak to operations. We can really speak to some of the issues that other uh, other professionals might be having. And when you have something like a code that requires coordination that, you know, pharmacists are actually positioned in a way that they can have an impact on that patient and the outcome of that patient outside of simply the drug therapy for that, simply the drug therapy. Um, and then that committee went on to actually implement targeted temperature, a targeted temperature management protocol. So again, that was something that um, I put a lot of work into as a pharmacist, but you know, TTM is really a procedure that touches on almost every aspect of care from that patient from the time they arrive to the ER all the way through their time to the ICU. So that was, those are some experiences that showed me that pharmacy can have a significant impact on the overall care of a patient in the hospital setting. I really like the way you describe that. It shows how when we come together as a, as a team, it improves our processes and the care that we deliver our patients. That's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sorry. And I guess going back to your question on advocacy. So because of those experiences and they've been very positive and formative for me, I have realized that I want to do my part to give those opportunities to other pharmacists. So I'm really advocating for new residency programs, um, I'm trying to get the number of board-certified pharmacy staff um, increased in prime, and I'm trying to increase the number of pharmacists that are going to codes. Obviously, this stuff is a challenge with COVID and timelines, but these are my overall goals as it pertains to uh, advocacy. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about your COVID response. You mentioned that earlier, and you mentioned your role is in more of a corporate role, and you have uh, responsibility for initiatives across the organization, both clinical expense management and otherwise. But when you found yourself uh, leading through a pandemic, uh, how did you communicate with the staff in the hospitals that really span the country during the height of the pandemic? Um, other than email, did you find other effective ways to, to communicate? So we know that in scenarios such as COVID-19, we know that effective communication is what's really going to save lives. And that's because we can ensure a consistent response. It allows us to anticipate issues before they happen and to react quickly to things that we may not have been able to foresee. The main challenge for Prime, but also the main strength for Prime, was that we have, again, a very wide national footprint. And the initial phases of the pandemic hit the northeastern part of the country. So for us, it was primarily New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And it didn't really hit the other states at the time that... um, the pandemic didn't hit the other states that were we have hospitals in at that time. So when we hear the news coming out of Italy, we know that we're about three to four weeks behind the clinical course of Italy. And we start to see some of our hospitals in the Northeast are getting slammed. How do we communicate the urgency of their needs? The hospitals in Cal- like places like California, Texas, Nevada, that barely had any patients. How do we communicate to them the urgency of preparing now? How do we communicate to them the need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on drugs that are readily available and they don't have a single COVID-19 patient? And we also know that the beginning of the pandemic was referred to as what they call an infodemic. I've never seen such a low threshold for literature to be published. And a simple tweet could change practice in a hospital across the country. So when you have these rapidly changing landscapes, when we have um, unprecedented challenges, 
that are impacting certain regions and not others, really the one thing that we know will help these people uh, is communication. That's what's going to save lives. So obviously there's, there's email communications, but um, like many other health systems, we formed a corporate COVID-19 task force um, that was led by our corporate CMOs and it had all the different um, line leaders on the call to discuss various challenges and priorities. That met daily every morning. After that call, we had a corporate pharmacy team meeting. So I would kind of get the summary from the national task force, discuss it with the corporate, the corporate pharmacy team. They would give me feedback on challenges they're seeing in their regions. And then every single day, we would have a national pharmacy call with all 45 hospitals. This happened for a few months, so that was pretty uh, taxing. <laughs> um, in addition to those kind of frequent touch points, we also put together a national document of, um, it was a standardization document ranging from um, the clinical side, the operation side, drug purchasing, inventory, clinical guidelines, infection control measures, code response. It was a one-stop shop for every piece of information that a hospital might need as it pertains to COVID-19. And so by having a centralized reference or resource of information that we always consistently update and refer them to, we were able to really send a cohesive message. So for that, that communication, it, it sounds effective, especially since you have the benefit of experiencing um, spikes in positive patients in some parts of the country, but not in others. Uh, were you, did you use a, a resource uh, allocation strategy? Did you move resources around the country or did things happen too quickly for, for you to be able to do that? Yeah, so the, our team, you know, we, we, we also partner with HPG. Um, Anya had these interdisciplinary calls, or I guess not interdisciplinary, but um, inter-membership calls. We had calls with other members across the country to hear what their challenges were. So based on the news from Italy, based on news from hospitals like Holy Name, NYU Langone, University of Washington in Seattle, we were able to prepare our response very early on. So um, as early as March, we told the entire country that you need to prepare to have a surge of patients who are going to be mechanically ventilated for two to three weeks at a time. We were also very early and aggressive with approaching the state boards of pharmacy to see which states would allow us to move drugs in and out of that state. So as early as March, we told everybody they need to stock up at least an extra three to four weeks. We eventually increased that par level for a list of drugs that we identified. And then our corporate uh, pharmacy coordinator, uh, Juanice, she was able to put together a shipping strategy using FedEx and local couriers for each hospital. So we put together a centralized process for monitoring inventory levels with our analyst, Paulo, and our clinical pharmacist, Ronnie. And um, through that, um, that inventory reporting process, we were able to detect issues early on. We looked at purchasing trends and inventory values, and then using the shipping strategy that Juanice put together, we were able to ship drugs to impacted areas ahead of time. And so through that strategy, there was not a single in instance where someone didn't have a sedative analgesic paralytic. There was no drug shortage that I'm aware of that created a negative patient outcome. So that, that's one thing I'm proud of with the response that we had. That's impressive. You had mentioned your relationship with Health Trust. We have Jason Braithwaite, who's one of our pharmacy leaders at Health Trust with us today. Jason, you heard um, David describe the way they communicated and he uh, was communicating really to hospitals uh, that, that span from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, can you speak a little bit about 
your challenges and the infrastructure you put in place for communication and uh, how that uh, aligns with what David described. Yeah, I think I think those are, are great points and the process that David put into place is is really impressive. Uh, the one thing that we know within the pharmacy space is about half of the drug shortages are fabricated by purchasing patterns as well. So uh, the the pre-buying, the panic buying, some of those things can really put pressure on the supply chain uh, because it takes a significantly longer time for the, the pharmaceutical manufacturer supply chain to ramp up. And so if IDNs are purchasing, um, you know, in advance, um, that, that can be impactful as well. So to, to David's point, really getting ahead of things is very key in this space to prevent shortages at your facility. If you, if you wait um, until the need arises, uh, if you're not predicting and, and working ahead to look at shortages, uh, it's going to be too late. And so within Health Trust, we also have a, a drug shortage task force. Uh, we're constantly looking at wholesalers' data. We're looking at our internal members' data uh, and really keeping a very tight pulse on the market to figure out what are the strains and, and what uh, strains are happening on, on different pharmaceuticals at different times. Um, and, and as you know, that process is not just localized to the U.S., manufacturing occurs in China, India, Europe, all over the world. And so uh, keeping a pulse on what's happening in the world um, is, is key. Um, so I think having that preemptive strategy is absolutely necessary. It's something that we've put a lot of focus and effort into here at Health Trust. And I can tell that David has done the same there at, at Prime Health. But uh, above and beyond us putting our own focus on it, we try to make sure we get that information out to members uh, quickly um, and in a way that also isn't going to create excessive panic, which which could then exacerbate a a worsen, worsening of the shortage. So um, I think those are all things that are important as you kind of deal with whether it's a pandemic or a quality issue within the supply chain of that pharmaceutical. I was just going to say, uh, you know, thank you to Jason. I wanted to mention that, um, you know, a lot of the elements of our strategy that we're discussing aren't necessarily not necessarily novel. Um, a lot of other major institutions have done very similar things, but um, I do want to sincerely thank the relationship with HPG. You know, that newsletter that you send, everyone sends out once a week, and the McKesson Control Channel. That was definitely a key part of our strategy. And also things like um, the contact information or information on how to establish accounts with the direct purchases for the manufacturers. Those are all pieces that HBG put together and sent out to the membership. And those are things that we um, took very seriously and acted on very early and we're very persistent about. So because of the partnership with HBG and the partnership with the you know, manufacturers, direct purchases, but then also looking at the data and the clinical course of the patients, we were able to work with those things to really guarantee the drug supply chain. And I think one thing I just wanted to add, Rick, going back to that question on communication and how, you know, these resources are great, but if people aren't taking it seriously, you know, we can send them all this vendor contact information as much as possible. If they don't actually act on it, 
it's not doing anybody any good. But on those national calls we had every day, we always gave about 15 or 20 minutes for pharmacists, the frontline staff to communicate with the rest of the country and talk about what they're seeing. Uh, really just almost a therapy session for the people in the impacted area. But then, you know, ideally it was a, um, a forum for them to emotionally prepare people across the country that they really need to take this seriously because communication is only as effective as it's interpreted. And I think that hearing their colleagues talk about the, the death and the challenges that they're seeing really is what spurred them to action. Okay. David, you had mentioned earlier uh, misinformation and you had referenced the tweet, but one phenomenon or one remarkable observation that I've had during our industry or the healthcare industry's response to uh, this pandemic and to COVID was the, the rapidly changing guidance that we received and the subsequent policy changes that uh, had to be made and practice that had to be changed almost uh, daily and sometimes um, with uh, not much uh, ability to, to communicate in advance and uh, effectively communicating with staff what the new clinical guidance was. How did you and your team handle those rapidly changing uh, clinical guidance um, with the treatment options that uh, you had and decisions you had to make for your patients? Sure. So earlier on, um, a lot of people referred to this period of COVID-19 as an infodemic. And again, there was never such a low threshold to publish in the therapeutic area. So we saw a lot of these challenges with uh, clinical quality, safety, and efficacy on everything ranging from melatonin, vitamin C, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, tocilizumab, azithromycin, ivermectin, pepsid, anticoagulation strategies, and a lot of other drugs and interventions. And we discussed how we had that national standard guideline in um, there was times where we would publish it twice a day because there was groundbreaking, almost 180 perspective on certain therapies that it's not effective and causes harm. So because we had a very proactive strategy, we were able and we established our processes very early on. I actually tried to spend more time slowing down than speeding up. You know, we ramped up as much as possible as soon as possible. But then once we started to see the literature doing these 180s and how people were being very reactive, we put a lot of priority on slowing down. And the main questions that we would sort of ask each other on the calls were things like, if it was you or your family member laying in that bed, would you still recommend this therapy given the lack of safety data or the lack of efficacy data? And if people felt that, you know, sometimes doing anything is better than doing nothing, but that's really not the case. That's not how we practice medicine, and it should really be an emphasis on first doing no harm. And it was really hard to break that mentality. And the second question is, okay, fine, so you think that maybe it is beneficial, but we all know that there's a national shortage on PPE, and are you going to make a nurse go in the room three times a day to give somebody vitamin C, PO? If that was your friend or family member, would you feel comfortable with them having to go into uh, covid patient's room and give them vitamin C. And this was early on in the pandemic when we didn't really understand surface contamination. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know how effective the masks were. There were a lot of questions in the beginning of the pandemic. So really combating that, that urge or that need to do something rather than nothing was the biggest challenge. And it also created a huge, uh, one thing I'm not hearing a lot of discussion on is that it created a huge vacuum and a huge issue with potential medication safety issues. 
because we were using drugs at doses that weren't studied. We were giving them by routes that were not really, that weren't studied as well. And um, so really the medication safety side of it too was a big issue that we were concerned about as well. You had mentioned earlier that you didn't experience any drug shortages during the pandemic. Uh, and that's attributable, attributable to the planning that you and, and your team had and the guidance that you received from Health Trust. But let's talk a bit about staffing. How did you manage your staffing during the pandemic? Are there any creative staffing uh, solutions that you had? Were you short of staff in areas or were they impacted? Uh, there, was their health impacted and, and how did you resolve that? Sure, so early on in the pandemic, um, we instructed every pharmacy department to put together a surge plan, a disaster plan and department contact lists. So the disaster plan went through various scenarios of staffing reduction. And so, for example, I would, I would have a document and say that if we lost up to 75% of our pharmacists and techs, this is what our plan would be. Um, we also broke down responsibilities based on what's an essential physical responsibility. So what is the minimum number of people we need on site to ensure drug supply chain? So is it the purchasing? Is it the stocking? Is it the delivery, the compounding? What's the minimum number of people we need on site? And what can we outsource or do remotely? So every single hospital came up with uh, different levels of services and solutions where um, they would need, sorry. Um, so every hospital came up with different levels of services. And based on that level of service, we had different levels of downtime essentially. So we established remote EHR access for all pharmacy employees across the country. We set up access for sister hospitals to cover for each other. And then we also contracted with Cardinal and for every hospital that didn't have a sister hospital that could easily cover for them, and even hospitals who do have a sister hospital, you know, what happens if both hospitals get hit? Uh, Cardinal was able to um, onboard our hospitals to do emergency remote order entry services for us in that event. So in a scenario like that, Cardinal would handle all the profiling and the remaining staff would be able to focus on the physical responsibilities of drug supply chain management on site. And the last thing we did was, um, similar to other institutions, we adopted block scheduling. And we really had to explain or, or help pharmacists rationalize. A lot of people feel that they need to go to code, they need to be on the floors. But in the beginning of the pandemic, again, we weren't sure how this was going to impact the various departments. And they felt that by pulling back from the floors, by pulling back from rounds, that you know maybe they weren't being good partners to the physicians or nurses who are putting their lives on the line as frontline workers um, for a lot of the patients. So, you know, really we told them that for the overall greater good for the patients, we need to make sure that we have as much staff as possible that is healthy for as long as possible so that we can help the most number of patients. If one pharmacist goes to a code and brought something back to the whole department and everyone gets sick, then we're impacting a lot more patients. So um, we did have a change in the scope of pharmacy services for impacted sites also. Jason, could you comment on other creative staffing solutions you may have seen or how pharmacists may have been redeployed uh, to other roles or other locations? Uh, yeah, I think one of the probably more innovative ones, and I think uh, a few states um, have historically allowed this, and, and I think it, it was expanded during COVID, but the use of centralized order verification, uh, I know, is, is one of those. So I've seen times where Pharmacists could then work from home to verify physician orders, um, to put those orders in to be compounded. Uh, and that, that's one way that um, 
sites have been able to, as David talked about, make sure that you're deploying the appropriate amount in the hospital, but for other services that are provided by pharmacists, such as the order verification and um, you know, looking up and, and uh, you know, warfarin dosing and, and antibiotic dosing and some of those things, you can really do that remotely with the advent of, of electronic health records and, uh, and, and the ability to kind of portal into your health system. And so um, that's probably one of the, the more innovative uses of this because I think, again, there was spotty use of that uh, depending on state laws out there. And I've seen that really ratchet up during the uh, pandemic with more states allowing that, um, you know, um, ad hoc or um, outside of their, their normal rules and regulations. Um, and that, that's really, I think, had a, a pretty big impact because people can avoid the transmission but still provide um, that direct patient care um, but from a remote uh, location. So I think that that was probably the most impactful that I've seen during this pandemic. You both had mentioned um, distributors and, and manufacturers. David, how did you inter interact with drug manufacturers differently, uh, more frequently, or, or did you during the pandemic? What did that look like? One of the, one of the interesting pieces of this pandemic was that um, a lot of the wholesalers and some of the manufacturers also, um, they place drugs on allocation based on historic utilization. So if you have a GPO strategy looking at, you know, one particular manufacturer of a drug and that drug goes on shortage, you have no historic purchasing of the alternative um, product from another manufacturer. So the other interesting thing is that we did a wholesaler conversion about two years ago or three, I guess it's two and a half years ago. But, you know, even though we had some historic purchases um, from our previous wholesaler, those um, that, that historic purchasing volume didn't really carry over to our new wholesaler. So we had some, uh, some challenges with um, the historic allocation process. And also, it didn't make a lot of sense that um, the wholesalers had purchases limited based on historic allocation, but that was across the country. There was no, I guess, taper for hospitals that were in hotspots versus non-hotspots. So we were really forced to, that's where um, Prime's footprint actually became a strength. Usually being far apart is not great, but because of historic allocations and because all of the hospitals across the country had historic allocations, we were able to purchase drugs in California, for example, and ship them to New Jersey. Had we, had we relied solely on our historic allocations in one market, we, we probably would have had a lot more issues. And again, um, the HPG control channel helped us and the um, we had some good partners with certain manufacturers so before the pandemic we were really trying to minimize direct purchases as much as, as much as possible um, we don't have a centralized accounting system in prime so each hospital who has a direct purchase that doesn't really funnel up to me at the corporate level necessarily so I want to get as much visibility on drug spend as possible and so we were really we were really trying to limit direct purchases where we could um, but the pandemic really changed that. And moving forward, I think that's a strategy we're going to have to deploy more often um, if these drug shortages continue. As you continue to lead your organization through this time, looking back, is there anything you or your team would do differently or what lessons uh, learned? Sure. So really COVID-19 truly exposed a lot of our organizational vulnerability, vulner vulnerabilities. 
And the lack of execution of certain small things that I really took for granted prior to COVID, um, certain things like we told everybody set up an account with this vendor and everybody should have Seesaws in place, for example. Because there was a delay in action on those seemingly small tasks, it created a huge stumbling block for us in a lot of our response. So going back to your question about, you know, direct purchases, hospitals who didn't have CSOS in place couldn't really order controlled substances from uh, new 503B vendors and from some of the manufacturers who had them available. So because of COVID-19 and our response, you know, there's certain things I realized that I need to prioritize operationally and really guarantee that they're executed. Everybody has to get it done. There's not really an excuse for this sort of thing. Um, I used to let certain things go and say that, you know, that side has other priorities, but really making sure you have a strong foundation is something that I'm not going to take for granted. Um, from the clinical side, you know, hindsight's 2020, and um, we discussed the challenges with the literature and the downstream clinical consequences. You know, I wish we knew now what we knew. I wish we knew then what we know now in terms of the clinical side of this, but, you know, overall, our response wasn't perfect. But I do think that we were able to keep our staff safe and we didn't have any poor patient outcomes due to medication management or safety issues. So, you know, I think there's a lot that we learned. I think that when it's truly said and done, we're going to have to have sort of a postmortem and really think about what processes we tried, which really worked for us and which need to get carried forward, you know, after this whole thing is said and done. Well, David and Jason, thank you both for joining us today, and thank you for what you have done and continue to do to support those that we serve. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit healthtrustpg.com backslash the source backslash candid conversations to listen to more of our candid conversations.